This is very much work in progress. I don't have a paper. Um, I barely have notes, actually, towards this, so this idea. It, um, I've just finished all of my marking for last term. I've um, just started a sabbatical, and this will hopefully be one of the outputs of the, the sabbatical. So it's great to be able to present it at this stage. I want to be working on this paper for the next uh, month or, or six weeks or so. Um, it comes out of a couple of projects that it's probably worth saying something about. Um, one is a, a project that I was working on with a, um, uh, four other people um, that I coordinated, looking at the risks of um, uh, undocumented migration, I think was the official title, um, across northeast Africa. And we did research in Ethiopia, Sudan, Egypt, Malta, and Italy. Uh, and that was launched um, in Cairo at the end of last year. It was a, a study for a consortium of organizations, including UNHCR and IOM. So we have quite a lot of interviews, about 100 interviews with undocumented migrants at various stages of, of movements across northeast Africa that, um, that I will quote from um, to some extent. That report exists in report form, and we're working on turning that into a, a more academic paper, but I'm drawing on elements of that for this study. The... Um, the second um, project that I'm going to be referring to is ongoing research in Morocco, most recently under a project called Beyond Irregularity um, that was uh, led by IPPR when Miriam Cherty, who is now here, um, uh, was, was based at IPPR. She was the coordinator of that, of that project. So, uh, and I've subsequently, that finished in, um, in 2004, um, 2014, sorry, um, on the, the regularization in Morocco that took place during the whole of, of 2014 that finished at the beginning of last year. So I've been back to Morocco twice um, last year to follow up with uh, the people that we were interviewing just to find out how that, that regularization process has, uh, has progressed. And that's a, a particularly interesting example. But I want to use this research essentially on, on undocumented migration at, at both sides of North Africa to focus on a, uh, a particular question that has interested me throughout this, we have to use the term crisis, um, but I think, as most people do, firmly in inverted commas, the, uh, what is the nature of this crisis? Is it a, Frank's called it a crisis of Europe, which I think is a very helpful term. Um, the, the narrative of this crisis is, I think, a particularly interesting question. What is it a crisis of? This is a, uh, a largely um, policy and media-generated discourse that I think as academics we have to pick apart a bit and say, what, what exactly is the nature of this migration crisis which uh, uh, we are continuing to experience, particularly in a, a Euro-Mediterranean context? So that's the, uh, the context of this question. And for a long time I've been interested in migrant subjectivities. Um, and I'll say something about the theoretical background to that in a, uh, in a moment. Um, and that's where I want to situate my potential contribution to this, in investigating this relationship between the way we understand migrants, refugees, that distinction is itself an interesting question of subjectivity, um, and the way in which policy responses are developed, and narratives of the, the crisis unfold largely in a, in a context beyond the, the academic. Um, so 
I'm going to start by looking at various different manifestations of the border. I'm essentially a political geographer, and, and borders are one of the things I'm particularly concerned with. Uh, and then relate that to these questions of subjectivity, and then talk about some elements throughout this uh, um, discussion of subjectivity, drawing on these two, these two research projects. And the, the argument that I want to make is that the way in which migrants are understood is intimately connected with the way policy attempts to control their movement. And in certain contexts where um, the, the autonomy of, of migrants is recognised within those policy responses, and I think the, the 2014 regularisation in Morocco is a particularly interesting example of that, in fact a particularly, a particularly successful example of that, I would continue to argue despite... Um, some evidence to the, to the country which is emerging over the last year or so. But I think the Moroccan regularisation is something to be welcomed um, and effectively serves as a, as a model in, in some situations for potential responses elsewhere in the region. So I want to argue that um, in contrast to some of the policy developments that we're seeing in northeast Africa, um, the effectiveness of the Moroccan response is, offers some sort of um, positive potential in an otherwise fairly bleak um, area. So, um, borders. I think we're, we're pretty comfortable with this idea that, that borders are changing, that borders are moving away from the physical location of the border. This has been the, the narrative of um, the, the sort of political geographical networks that, that I move in for, for much of the last decade. And there's, a, there's a now a lot of research which looks at the way that um, if we're looking at the European border, in this case this is a map that I imagine will be familiar to, uh, to many of you, it, it extends significantly beyond the actual frontier of Europe. That the, in Sandra Lavenix's terms, the, the border is moving up, down, in and out in both physical terms and the way in which the border is governed. So terms such as bordering have entered into to fairly common discourse, I think, to, to refer to this much more complex architecture of border control. And that is linked to a, at least a narrative of particular technical capacity. This is a Frontex photo of the Frontex control room, I find it very difficult to believe that this actually exists. I've not seen it myself. Um, the idea that there are people looking at three screens and there's this massive thing in front of them showing maps and showing movements and with BBC World on live stream. It's, it seems a bit far-fetched to think that this is the Frontex control room. Um, but to an extent, it doesn't really matter. Whether I don't, has anybody seen the Frontex control room? No, excellent. That, that kind of proves my point. So this, this is from the Frontex website. Anyway, so this is... This is the narrative that, that Frontex want to present to the world, that, that they have this level of mastery of all of these information flows. And that in itself is, is particularly interesting because I think that's central to this idea of the networked border, that, that there are masses of information flows and it takes a, a specialist organisation to manage that. And increasingly, Frontex present themselves not as a border control agency, but as an intelligence agency. And, and I think that distinction is, is an interesting one. And this sort of photo helps to reinforce that, whether it is an actual photo of the, 
the Frontex control room or whether it is largely photoshopped, we don't know. <laughs> but, um, but this is what they want, want us to think. And this sort of question of, of information rather than the management of actual material flows is central, I think, to the notion of the, of the networked border. In the last, I mean, more recently than this, it's, it's difficult to date it precisely. The article which I use a lot to refer to this is one by William Walters on the humanitarian border from 2011. And I think that's uh, a significant um, element of this, that, that Walters talks about this evolution of the networked border to develop a certain humanitarian argument for border control. And this is a... Um, uh, a Frontex press release from, from 2013 after the, um, what at the time was considered to be one of the most shocking tragedies just off, uh, off Lampedusa um, where the, um, there was a two page press release and, and at no point in this two pages did it recognise that the purpose of Frontex was to stop people getting to Europe it was very much a um, the idea that Frontex was a search and rescue operation and the purpose of Frontex was to save migrants' lives. And, and this is something which Walters and others have started to unpick in this, in this discourse about the way in which border control is changing. And it goes back to discussions around, around trafficking, that the idea of, of trafficking is, is essentially to, to stop poor people migrating for their own good. For a, this is a humanitarian reason to, to prevent migration in various ways. And the, the way in which this, this narrative of Frontex coordinating all of these various sources of information in order to, um, to help this one guy, Samuel, um, who's in a boat which is sinking in the Mediterranean, and all of these coordinated services eventually managed to, to save Samuel's life, and that is the, the raison d'etre of Frontex in these, these contexts. It is very much the message which comes out of this, um, of this sort of humanitarian argument around borders. And I think that offers an alternative understanding of the purpose of policy, the way in which policy operates, um, and the, the role of migrants, and particularly undocumented migrants, within that. The way migrants are seen is a different... They are um, embodied individuals in some sort of need. They're essentially victims that are there to be helped by organisations like Frontex. And this is significantly different from the, the networked border, which is largely disembodied and questions of, of flows and information. And I kind of had this paper planned out at, um, at, this, at this stage, and I was thinking that this is one of the things I'm going to write in the next six months or so, um, with these two contrasted ideas... And then, of course, the last few months have seen a very different type, a much more traditional border, starting to, um, to roll out much more enthusiastically than, um, uh, than in previous years. Not to say that, that fences have not been part of border control, particularly within Europe over the last decade or so. The area in the north of Morocco, where, where I've worked quite a lot for that period, um, the, the Spanish enclaves of Ceuta and Melilla, uh, in 1999, erected um, significant high-tension double fences that, um, that was the first major um, technical border, on, uh, border fence on that, on that particular border. 
But over the last few months, this really is something which has intensified very significantly, and I'm sure everybody is, is familiar with the Greek-Turkish border, the, the bordering of Hungary, and a range of other projects around the world. The uh, Indian-Bangladeshi border is one which is, uh, is coming to, uh, to prominence. But really almost a refutation of a literature that has developed within political geography over the last decade or so, which has identified the border as moving away from this, this physical location of the border. This is coming back to the physical location of the border and suggesting that actually there is, there is something about this idea of the networked border or the humanitarian border which hasn't been effective in doing what borders are supposed to do, which is stop people moving across them or at least give give state institutions some control over which people move across them and how they move across them. That's perhaps a more accurate term. So this, this unrolling of um, <coughs> physical fences, physical border architecture, um, calls into question some of this discussion about the, about the networked border. And if, if information is all it takes, as suggested by the uh, discussion of the, uh, the Frontex uh, image that they have projected for some time. If information is key, then why do we need fences? That starts to draw into question that, uh, uh, that element. And this suggests that the sort of migration, the sort of potential threat which, is which, is, uh, which these fences are required to prevent um, is a slightly different thing. And what I want to to suggest in these three presentations of, of these different types of borders is that there is a different sort of migrant who is imagined in these, in these positions. And that's where um, I want to introduce this, this notion of political subjectivity, which is really the sort of theoretical core of what I want to, to talk about. And, and this is some... This, and that's the difficulty of presenting something when you haven't written the paper, that this is something that which I will work through in the paper. But for me, and for a long time, this quote from the, the History of Sexuality, the introduction of the History of, Se of Sexuality, Volume 1, is really central, I think, to, to understanding what, what Foucault intended in this. And, and I think Foucault, although people have... Um, taken a lot of different angles on, on the sense of subjectivity. Um, I think much of it, and certainly the sense in which I'm using it, can be traced back to, to Foucault. But this understanding of subjectivity is, is quite um, well encapsulated in this, in this quote, that, that there's a series of processes of both what he called subjective action and, and objectivation that allow a particular subject to become an object of knowledge. This is something about the processes by which particular individual human beings become subject to our, our understanding of them, our awareness of them, um, as particular subjects. So they are the, the focus of our knowledge, and we understand them in a particular way, what Gibbons called the double hermeneutic, that, that we understand... Um, rather than a single hermeneutic that the, the natural sciences are trying to work on. In other words, we're trying to work out what these trees or rocks or chemicals are doing. Um, within the social sciences, there is a double hermeneutic because the things that we're trying to work out are people and they're also trying to work things out. 
So we can't understand them as objects like rocks or chemicals. We have to understand them as subjects, as thinking, acting individuals. So there is this double hermeneutic that we have to work out, that we're trying to understand people who are also trying to make sense of the world in various ways. And it's this process that, that Foucault is particularly interested in. What does it mean to try to understand individuals as thinking, acting um, actors within the, uh, within the world? Um, and, and how does that vary as a tool of power? So he starts off thinking about things like um, censuses and the fact that towards the end of the 18th century... Um, the, the tool of the census rolls out across Western Europe and starts to change the way in which masses of populations are seen as individuals. So this is the emergence of the subject over this particular historical period. And since that time, individuals, these thinking agents, um, have been imagined in a variety of different ways. And I think this is something that, um, that applies particularly effectively to migration. Indeed, many people have applied it to, to migration. Um, in fact, the, the very identification of individuals as migrants is clearly a process of, of subjectivation. To say that of all of the many characteristics of this particular individual who is moving, I choose in this particular research to prioritise the characteristic as a migrant. That is what I am interested in in this research. That's already uh, a selection. That's already a process of choice that, that the individual themselves may well reject. In fact, I've spoken to people who, who do indeed reject that sort of classification. So that there's much more to me than just being a migrant. There's, you know, I have a whole range of things. I'm a, a member of a family. I'm a, a, a worker. Nicholas de Genova um, has a very interesting analysis of the, the 2006... Um, undocumented migrant protests in the US that uh, um, were very significant in, uh, in a whole range of cities to describe how the, the, the essence of these protests was uh, bunches of, of people who were defined in media and policy terms as undocumented migrants, as illegal residents quite often, saying no we are workers, we are here to work, we're not, we reject this this characterization as migrants, we want to be seen as workers, and if we are seen as workers, we think that will change the way in which policy responds to us. So there was a, uh, a question on a, a subjectivity basis, um, according to Genova's analysis of this, that um, challenged the way that, uh, that they wanted to, to be seen. And I think this, um, this relates to, to this understanding of of Foucault, of this question of subjectivity as, as essential to the, the inaction of power on particular actors. So there is a, a process uh, through which um, subjectivation uh, is prior to the subject. So this, this power acting of um, particular means of direction, particular ways of managing individuals that creates this... Um, the, the subject it creates a particular type of subject, a migrant or a worker or um, a mother or um, a, an illegal migrant or an undocumented migrant or the, the, the language that we choose to use to identify the object of knowledge is significant in this, this power relationship. And I'm 
I think I'm probably paraphrasing things that, um, that many of you are familiar with, but I think it's, it's key to what I want to, to talk about uh, in the rest of, uh, of what I've got to say. I want to talk about three different sorts of subjectivity that I think have emerged over the last few years in the, the media coverage and the policy discourse of um, undocumented migration, particularly in the, the Euro-Mediterranean area. Uh, and look at the way that um, this particular subjectivation has clashed or um, uh, synchronized with policy responses to that, uh, to that migration. And first, and I think probably most common, um, initially drawing on um, uh, a sort of Giorgio Agamben understanding of undocumented migration is of uh, undocumented migrants as, as abject subjects, of individuals who really have no rights at all. And this is a, um, um, a Guardian photo from, from Calais a few weeks ago <coughs> that I think um, highlights a rejection of this. We are not animals to live in the forests. People are saying we need to home. Um, the, the rejection of an understanding of um, an animalistic type of behaviour, that abject subjects are less than human somehow, that, um, that in, in many cases the, um, uh, they can't be counted because, because they're dead, because they are drowned in the Mediterranean somewhere. The, the statistics that, uh, that Anne was probably talking about last week, I know that, uh, that one of the things she's concerned about is the imprecise nature of, of these statistics because there are numbers of people that they can't count because not everybody is, uh, not everybody, quite literally, is washed up on the shores to be counted. But, but people disappear in the sea, they disappear in the desert. There's a, a level of objection about that, which means that they are not even countable. So much so do they, do they not exist. And this is something which is rejected in this sort of understanding. Uh, I think the, the, the sort of bare life, Agam Agamben approach is... Um, is starting to, to lose favour within a, a refugee studies, migration studies optic. It was something that was very popular maybe a decade ago. But certainly from my perspective and, um, and others who have written against this, I'm thinking particularly of Adam Ramadan, who works a lot with, um, with Palestine refugees, um, it doesn't lead to any sort of Optimism. There's no possibility for agency. It's essentially a denial of agency. Um, so there's no, there's no relationship with any sort of activism. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the, the Agamben explanation of this is starting to fade. But I think the, the sense of, of, of objection is, is somehow still present within the humanitarian response. And this is Fassan's very well cited um, analysis of humanitarianism. I'll read this out in case people can't uh, see it at the back. Um, Fassan says, um, the ontological principle of inequality finds its concrete manifestation in the act of assistance through which individuals identified as victims are established. They are those for whom the gift cannot imply a counter-gift, since it is assumed that they can only receive. They are the indebted of the world. So the sense in which... Um, the humanitarian border and the process of, of humanitarian assistance to, to migrants in danger 
um, continues to reinforce this understanding of objection. They are the individuals for whom the gift cannot require a counter-gift. A, uh, an individual who is pulled out of the sea can do nothing to, to thank people for their lives being saved. It's one of the, the, the very essence of, of humanitarianism, as, as Fasson sees it. Um, and, and even this, in, in recent work, and this is one of the things that, um, that we were investigating in this work in Northeast Africa, um, is the response to this from, from the European Union, the, the, the government that the European Union continues to insist, to, referring to as partners, um, in this humanitarian argument, and particularly through the Khartoum process, uh, which uh, governs essentially a response against human smuggling within Northeast Africa. This is um, the, uh, uh, an example of how it's been interacted in the, the Sudanese anti-trafficking law of, of a couple of years ago. But the, the Khartoum Declaration speaks of a need to promote a victim-centred approach to responding to undocumented migration in this region, supporting the victims of trafficking and protecting the human rights of smuggled migrants and the needs of the, the most vulnerable ones. This is a, uh, a direct quote from the, uh, the declaration of the 28th of November. Um, so there is a, uh, a direct connection here between what is seen as a, a humanitarian response, an assistance to people in need of assistance, and a, uh, an explicit identification of undocumented migrants as victims. We have to help them, we have to stop them migrating because they are victims. That's essentially the, the logic of, uh, of this um, European Union-sponsored intergovernmental agreement amongst six or seven governments of, of North East Africa. Um, and this is very much the sense of, of recent uh, migration legislation within that region that we were also um, discussing with the, the very few policymakers who were willing to speak to us in the course of that research. Um, questions around the, particularly the Sudanese anti-trafficking law. There's also a, an Egyptian um, anti-smuggling law, which is, I think it's still in the process of being passed. I don't think it's actually been, been passed yet, but it probably will pass this year if it haven't already done. Um, but it, it makes very similar points responding to the, to the Khartoum Declaration, highlighting this victim-centred approach and developing a, a what's seen as a humanitarian response to um, what the European Union refers to as upstream responses, meaning before they get to the European border, um, how can they be stopped? So this is one of the ways in which that, uh, that goes on, and it, it reinforces a, um, a sense of this, this understanding of, of objection, of the abject subject. Um, this was um, an interview that, uh, that we conducted for this um, Northeast Africa research. The fact that UNHCR cannot enter detention facilities, this is in Egypt, although the, the same goes for, for Libya as well. Um, UNHCR cannot enter detention facilities, uh, that I mean in the country more in general. People with protection concerns, or even in some cases, people who do hold yellow or blue cards. In, uh, in Egypt, individuals are given... Um, yellow and blue cards when they have registered an asylum claim and when they are recognised as a refugee. So this is the, the existence or the, the holding yellow and blue cards um, indicates that someone has a relationship with UNHCR. 
So even this relationship with UNHCR doesn't prevent them um, being, um, being sent into detention centres to, to return to stay in jail, sometimes for years. So they have this, this particular choice, very limited choice, between either returning to their country of origin or staying in jail in Egypt. And very similar could be said of the, um, the operation of, of detention facilities in Libya, which again relates to the sort of policy responses reinforcing this idea of, of migrants as abject subjects. A second subject position which I think emerges perhaps more recently, uh, and this is a photo um, from the, the New York Times, uh, an aerial photo of the, uh, the Greek-Macedonian border, um, the day after Macedonia declared a state of emergency in August last year. I think I, I have it written down somewhere. I think it was August the 23rd, 2015. Um, that, but this is a, an image which is, is clearly um, familiar to us from the, the media over the last 12 months or so, um, of unruly masses of individuals, of, of uncountable masses of, of individuals, going back to this sort of pre-18th century understanding that Foucault is talking about, of individuals not as individuals but as a, as a mass, as a uh, groups of individuals who can't be counted and therefore must be, uh, must be prevented, must be stopped in some, in some particular way or another because their aim is... Um, is likely to be harmful to the countries that, um, that are trying to prevent them coming in. So it's in response to this notion of unruly subjects that the, uh, the more recent development of physical border architectures, the, uh, the increasing numbers of fences, has, has developed. That this is a, a particular subject position which requires a, a physical movement, the, the notion of, of networking or, or information or humanitarianism is a much more problematic response to the, to the unruly subject, to the uncontrollable subject. Uh, and this is a, uh, a quote from a 50-year-old uh, Ethiopian man that we interviewed in, in Egypt towards the end of last year, talking about the, the sense of, of moving around, the sense of rejecting this notion of humanitarianism. Um, that... The, the very sense of, of refugee camps, um, particularly the, the refugee camps with which he was familiar, um, is one of care and maintenance, the, project, the protracted refugee situation um, that we know is in, increasingly familiar. So he says, I registered with UNHCR, you see. I was once an asylum seeker, but the condition in Dadaab were not good. There was a lot of violence by the Kenyan people. They were not happy about the Somali and other people living in the camp. They used to come to the camp at night and beat, steal or stab people. It was not so safe to stay there. And there was very little help and no jobs. Therefore, I left to find work in Kenya for a bit. And he went on to describe how he had he'd spent some time in Kenya. He'd had very little luck finding work in Kenya. So he decided to come north and, um, and explore the, uh, the situation in Sudan and, and later in, in Egypt. And this was a, a classic migration story of many of the people that we interviewed. In fact, the, the, the main argument of the report that came out of that research is that a very small number of individuals that we interviewed were leaving home with the intention of getting to Europe. This understanding that, that I think often emerges from media and policy discourse, that individuals are leaving home with the aim of getting to Europe, was, was very infrequent. It's a small minority of individuals that, that we interviewed, and certainly this wasn't a representative sample in any sense, 
but um, we didn't identify any evidence that suggested that, that there was any um, discrepancy with a broader sense of what was going on. Um, so this movement as a rejection of this established traditional humanitarian response as a relatively dehumanising one, the protracted refugee situation in which UNHCR maintains individuals um, is seen as problematic, particularly by the individuals who have to, uh, to assume that. So this unruly subject emerges out of a rejection of the, the abject subject positions that people feel they are, they are placed in. Um, I could say more about that, but I want to go on to the, to the third one, which I think is, is the most interesting and, and I think the, um, um, the, the most positive that comes significantly from the work of uh, Sandra Mazandra um, around the autonomous subject. And this is the, what Engin Isin would uh, refer to an acts of citizenship as the, the acts of citizens. This is um, from, this photo is, um, is from protests by undocumented migrants in the US. Um, again, rejecting this notion of um, uh, a subject position of undocumented migrants and emphasizing that, uh, that not only do they pay taxes, but they also love this country, refusing to be, to be pigeonholed in this way. Slightly closer to home, slightly more disturbing, you may have seen this, um, uh, this protest from the end of last year by Iranian asylum seekers, again on the Greek-Macedonian border, um, who sewed up their, their lips as a protest at their... Um, refusal, the Macedonian government's refusal to allow them into to Macedonia and they were uh, blocking railway lines at this time. But also again the Banksy's um, Steve Jobs um, graffiti in Calais refers to this sort of understanding of migrants uh, not as migrants but um, drawing attention to the fact that, uh, that Steve Jobs um, uh, Steve Jobs' father was a, a Syrian migrant to the US and he of course went on to create the, the most profitable company in the world um, highlighting a very different discourse around undocumented migrants that um, unfortunately this has been graffitied over now but I think it's a particularly powerful political argument that, that draws attention to the very different ways of, of understanding migrants and migration um, so there is a, uh, an understanding that comes from Mazandra's work and those who have, have used it of this sort of deliberate protest, this deliberate challenge to being seen in a, a relatively constrained position as a migrant, as an undocumented migrant with all of the, the problems that, um, uh, that are associated with that to draw attention to the range of other possibilities and I think this is the, the core of this idea of autonomy or autonomous migration. Um, again, this um, Northeast Africa research, this is a, a quote from a 25-year-old Eritrean who was in one of the, uh, the camps in northern Ethiopia. Uh, all refugees in the camp know the problems on the road to Libya. But because of the small chances of resettlement, everybody will try to go the illegal way. At this time of the year, the weather is good. This was towards the end of the summer last year. Um, so maybe I will go after one month. I fear it a lot, but because I have no other option, I have to go. There are lots of people I know that have gone. Some of my friends have made it to Europe, and others have died. One of the things that we were particularly interested in this research was how individuals who were considering a journey to, uh, to Europe evaluated the risks. And as I said, 
most people that we spoke to weren't considering a journey to Europe. That was actually a relatively uncommon thing for people to be, to be thinking about. And the, the Eritrean, um, most of the Eritreans that, that we interviewed were unusual in the fact that they said, yes, I'm, you know, my ambition is to get to, is to, get to Europe. Um, and so we were asking them about, you know, how did, they, how did they rate the dangers? Did they think there were risks involved? And, and many people, when we asked them to put a, a risk on it, said, I think there's about a 50% chance of dying. But, but I'm still keen to, to go. 50% was quite a common sort of you know, ballpark figure. Um, actually, when you look at the data which exists, which is clearly problematic, um, essentially the, the number of deaths in the Mediterranean, uh, the number of recorded deaths in the Mediterranean compared to the number of recorded crossings, it's about a 2% chance of, of dying. So even people who, who rated the, the danger of moving to Europe vastly higher than it actually is, was still prepared to go, which um, is a, a fairly solid argument against the, the interest that DFID and others have in the development of information campaigns, highlighting how dangerous it is for people to go. Actually, people think it's much more dangerous than it is, and they're still interested in going. Um, but this responds again to this, both a, a rejection of the existing care and maintenance approach um, and a, uh, a desire to, um, to identify something different within themselves, to try to, to focus on some sort of alternative possibility. And I want to, before finishing, turn to this um, earlier research project, Beyond Irregularity, um, which looks at the other side, the Western Mediterranean, particularly the situation in Morocco. Um, as we were working on it, um, this report, Human Rights Watch report, came out, um, abused and expelled, um, 2013, that um, highlighted the, the situation of, of individuals who were essentially stuck in Morocco. Research that I've done in Morocco over the last um, 10 years or so when I first did work there in 2002, 2003, people were moving through relatively smoothly. They would stay for a few months and, uh, uh, and then maybe be able to, uh, to get through to Ceuta Melilla or get onto a car after that. Later research in 2005 and 2006 showed that the average stay of the, the people I interviewed then, uh, which was just over 100 people, um, had increased to 17 months. And I spoke to people who'd been in Morocco as long as seven years. So there was a, a much longer um, extension of the, the Morocco um, stop than, than many people had intended or hoped for. Uh, and during this period, they were um, victim of a range of, of human rights abuses, which are detailed in this Human Rights, rights Watch mm -hmm. report, which illustrates again, I think, this, this idea of undocumented migrants as abject subjects, particularly this rather unpleasant photo on the, on the front that, uh, uh, that obviously for anonymity reasons they've actually cut people's faces out of. But, um, but there's a, a real sense of victimhood and um, objection, which inevitably has to come out of, of this sort of report, but I don't think captures the, the full reality of this situation. Um, this sort of image, I think, is, is more accurate of the, um, the sense that, um, that we were talking about. And this is a media image from a, uh, a, a Moroccan newspaper, so I've, 
uh, have the permission of these individuals to use this photo. But these were um, individuals that were interviewed during this research, um, protesting against the, the detention of a, um, a leader of an undocumented migrant organization um, in 2012. And just a brief, up to this point, when we started the, uh, uh, the research, the period from the end of 2011 to the announcement of the, uh, the regularization that started on the 1st of January 2014, um, essentially a gradual increase um, in the incidence of violence and the awareness of violence through things like the MSF report that was released in March 2013. Um, culminating in a, um, a National Council of Human Rights report um, in September 2013, Etranger et droits de that was um, authored by um, this guy, Dressel Yazemi, who was one of the, the partners in this research. He's a, uh, a good friend of Miriam's, which was uh, very useful in this, in this process, but an incredible guy himself, who was um, director of the uh, Conseil de la Communauté Marocaine à l'étranger, the CCME, who were partners in this research, and was also named head of the, the newly revamped National Council for Human Rights. Um, he'd lived in France for, for most of his adult life, um, he'd been an undocumented migrant for a significant portion of that time. He'd been detained in France periodically. He'd been deported from France to Morocco um, and eventually rose to head the, um, the International Federation of Human Rights in France and returned to, to Morocco at the request of the, the current king, Mohammed VI, um, to, as a sign of this this revamping of the uh, Moroccan civil society to head this, this important organisation. And he authored this report, Foreigners and Human Rights in Morocco, that was accepted more or less word for word by the, by the king in a public address in November 2013, um, and was a, a very persuasive figure in pushing through this, uh, this regularisation that a whole range of groups were were campaigning for. Um, in the end, the way the regularization developed um, was problematic, was seen as, um, as problematic by um, some NGOs um, continuing to campaign within Morocco. It was seen as relatively restrictive. It was seen as um, problematic in the, uh, the, the nature of the criteria that were requested. Um, but the fact that it was tried at all is a very radical departure from this earlier approach involving very significant violence, very significant levels of official violence towards undocumented migrants in Morocco, which hasn't entirely stopped. But this recognition of um, undocumented migrants as autonomous subjects who, through the regularization, were, were provided with a, with a greater level of autonomy presents an alternative model for the way in which um, policy can potentially, possibly more effectively than the regularization within Morocco. But I think the key to that policy shows that this sort of uh, approach is possible. Um, to develop a, um, an alternative way of, of understanding the subjectivity of undocumented migrants. And this is where I want to, to stop. Essentially with three points. Um, 
that, that policy responses and the nature of, of policy inevitably influences, but is also influenced by the understanding of migrants, where migrants are seen as, as unruly masses of individuals that have to be stopped at all costs. That is part of the narrative which drives this, um, this rollout of, of physical architecture of borders. Um, and the more effective responses, the, the responses which, um, at least to an extent, are able to, to recognise the, the human rights, the, the autonomous nature of migrants, such as the, the regularisation within Morocco, um, take a very different sort of subject position. And these responses often arise from migrant experiences themselves, such as um, the experiences of Dris Eliazemi, um, in France, his experiences as an undocumented migrant, his experiences of deportation, which fed into his analysis of the situation of undocumented migrants in Morocco and ultimately to this very radical change in policy within Morocco. Um, I've skimmed over some things a little too quickly there, but I wanted to leave some time for discussion. Um, so if you have any questions or observations, I'd be very happy to, uh, to note them down. Thank you very much.